Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So we just listened to maybe thousands of geese take off into the air. So you recorded it yesterday morning? Yeah. Yesterday morning um, I was in a similar spot to where we are now. It was actually a lot less windy yesterday morning. Yeah. And I set up my gear um, and it was about, I don't know, quarter to eight in the morning, something like that. Uh, I just uh, put my headphones on, sat down in the hide and began to listen. And a few minutes into the recording, that happened. Yeah, it's that amazing. So before, so there was hundreds of deep geese and ducks and swans all in the, in the water together. And then all of a sudden there's that intense sound of all the wing beats. And yeah. I think what we think happened, happened is they all took off at well, that, in one go. I was go. thinking what has disturbed them is that rumble, the rumble of a car. But I'm That not, was actually the wing beats. I'm not near yeah. a, a road and yeah. I, there weren't any cars. So it, it was actually, like you say, the sound of the birds themselves mm. crescendoing. But I can't believe you didn't leap up and look out and see what was going on. Oh no, I was immersed in my own um, sonic experience on the floor. <laughs> anyway, we're back in almost the same spot this morning. So we're at Calaverock Wildlife and Wetland Trust Nature Reserve, which is on the Solway Firth near Dumfries. The reserve includes the salt marshes and the grazing fields nearby. It's again, it's, it's uh, about quarter to eight in the morning. It's early December, yeah, and we're waiting to see what happens. And you would think, there's some, there's some geese, you would yeah. think, you know, you associate winter with darkness and stillness and maybe the quietest time of the year for wildlife. I mean, we're only a couple of weeks away from the shortest day here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and yet, some animals are not being quiet at this time of the year at no, all. No. I hope you can hear, but we can certainly see geese in front of us milling about and feeding on the grass. And 
These are barnacle geese. Yeah. Which is why, which is one of the main reasons this nature reserve is so special because these geese um, come here to spend the winter on the Solway Firth and they all breed in Svalbard in the high Svalbard? Arctic. Svalbard? <laughs> Some islands off Norway. It's an archipelago. Well, right. it's kind of way beyond Norway. It's kind of near Russia as well. And, and um, it's 2,000 miles away. So these geese, at the end of the summer, they fly here, they come here for the winter, and the entire population of barnacle geese, which breed in Svalbard, come to the Solway Firth for the winter. And that's because up there it's just going to be, I guess, snow and ice, and they won't be able to get to their food source, which is grass. Yeah, or tundra vegetation yeah. in, in the summer. Grassy-type plants. Yes. Yeah. so here they come and eat grass um, from the fields, and plants growing on the salt marshes. I think the barnacle geese are like a bit more elegant than your normal goose, like your Canada goose that you see yeah. down by the canal. Yeah, they're actually a bit smaller than Canada geese and their plumage is sort of black, grey, black and silvery grey and a bit of white, so they're really lovely geese. So um, they've been out on the mudflats all night roosting, so they sleep on the mud. And the sand. And the sand. Yeah. For safety. And then they all start flying in at dawn. They're flying in for the day to start feeding. Mm. Oh, we can hear some hoopers hooting as well. So that's the other species which is um, present here on this nature reserve. One of the other important species are the hooper swans. And they also migrate from Iceland to spend the winter here. And they actually can be seen all, all around in Scotland and northern Britain in the winter and hooper swans are called hooper swans because they hoop they they're hooping do, call are you going to do an invitation no no <laughs> I think we might get we might have some recording of yeah. hooper swans later today but as opposed to mute swans which are the ones you tend to see in your city or your town park yeah. can't they they've got the orange red red ready orange beaks yeah they're called mute swans, apparently, because they're less vocal than other swans, although they're not completely mute. No. Um, yeah. Hoop, yeah, and hoopers have got big yellow bills. Yeah. And the other one that isn't here is the Buick. Yeah. That's also got a yellow bill. Yeah, and it's a bit smaller. And they also come to feed on the grasslands and other crops in the fields in winter. Which is why there can be a bit of conflict between the swans and geese in winter and surrounding agriculture. Okay, we, c we can hear their hooper swans. Yeah. It's just beginning to get light.
There's a great big mix of birds in here though, aren't there? Yeah. As well as the barnacle geese. That's right, now it's a bit lighter, we can see all the ducks. I think they're probably Eugen and Teal, maybe, in the foreground. I've got a big bunch of jackdaws up in a tree over there. One of the things they do here is actually feed. They put out <coughs> feed for the swans, especially, grain, um, a couple of times a day. And partly that's to attract and encourage the birds to... Ooh, there go the jackdaws. So they're encouraging the birds to um, stay quite near the nature reserve rather than spread out into the surrounding agricultural land where they're going to be competing for the food with agriculture. Yeah, um, I suppose agricultural land will have some really nice grass, yeah. some really green Intense fertilised yeah. grass. Yeah. It will look rather tasty. And they might prefer that to the kind of scrubby, rough grazing here. But Maybe, yeah. So there's always, wherever you get wintering geese, there's always a bit of conflict with farming. They seem to be doing a good job at this reserve, though, at keeping them here. Yeah. And I think they manage the fields with some cutting and some grazing so that they're in optimum condition for when the geese arrive. Because they do like a short, short grass to feed on. And when, when do the geese arrive? Um, I think the peak time is sort of October. Okay. So, so they're here. They're, they're here between October and March. Every year. And I think originally they'd have been coming to the Solway Firth to feed on the grass on the salt marshes. And then, spreading out as, as humans colonised the area and developed agriculture, the geese would have spread out into the fields. And they're, they're in big family groups? Yeah. Adults and their offspring. And I know with the um, hooper swans, because I went to a talk Ooh. yesterday, they're family groups, so there'll be a couple of parents and they'll have brought their offspring, their cygnets, with them on their first journey south. So they might have one, two, three, maybe four cygnets, and at the age of like about two or three months old, they fly hundreds and hundreds of miles from Iceland, from Iceland, yeah. down to here, and, and learn the route from their parents. Yes, yeah. and they might move on somewhere else in the British Isles, but it's worth hanging around here if you're going to get fed <laughs> twice a day, though, isn't yeah. it? And how, how long do they live for? Well, they've got... They've, they've ringed them, some of them anyway, and there's a little um, database in there, so if you, if you happen to catch the number on one of the legs of the swans, because when the swans are feeding, they dip right up, they put the head right down and the legs stick up, and you can see the identification ring. You can go and type the number into the computer and it'll tell oh. you which swan it is, how old it is, yeah. whether it's male or female, who its mate is. Yeah. They've named some of the swans, so 
I was with a guy called Derek and he, he found Bowie. And Bowie was a mate of Ruby and they were both about 10 or 11. Wow. And they they mate for life? Yeah, they mate for life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they live, they can live into their 20s, Hooper right. Swans. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. But unfortunately around here, one of the problems is the power lines. Um, they can get caught in the power lines and killed. They've started working with the power company. Um, they put reflectors on the power lines now, which does seem to help. Hmm. As for the barnacle geese, I think the nature reserve warden said they'd had one that was 36. Blimey. That's amazing. It's yeah. <laughs> a lot of miles. A lot of air miles. Yeah. <laughs> On grass. Fueled by grass. <laughs> this time of year is really just about surviving the winter, isn't it? About um, eating enough. Yeah. And building up your reserves. So you're in a fit state to breed. You A fit state to fly, fly back, back. Make the journey yeah, back and back. breed. Yeah. yeah. So we're, um, we're on this nature reserve, which has um, got the sea and the estuary on one side, but then inland, extensive farmland. I mean, what are your thoughts about nature reserves generally, Joey? Um, well, I think there's somewhat of a necessity in today's world. Um, but if you think about it, if I think about it, I also think they're quite paradoxical in some ways because um, they're nature reserves, but they're actually quite intensively managed by humans to ensure that certain habitats exist for the species that the human has decided it mm. wants to see or conserve or preserve yeah. or enhance. So in many ways they're artificial constructs yeah. to a degree, um, but I think that's the position we're faced with when we're losing so many species. Mm. Those that are endangered need special measures taken, don't they? Mm. So they need they need these small pockets of land that have been designed specifically for them to yeah. thrive in. Yeah. Because it's so humans have chosen really, haven't they, to sort of describe this area of land as a nature reserve, put a perimeter around it, and out there is not the nature reserve. No, and, and that's inside is. That's all a bit it's all a bit of an imbalance, really, isn't it? What we should, what I feel is we should be much more connected with nature and other animals, and much more respectful of them, and not have gone to the degree that we have gone to in all the other places to eradicate them. We should be yeah. treating them more as equals and living in harmony with them, rather than going, right, we've completely trashed this place for you, but we've left you this little bit yeah. here. You can all go in here. Yeah. 
<laughs> we saved this bit for you. Here's some nice grass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know in some cultures, like I, I heard about um, a Maori culture in New Zealand where um, they've actually been able to work with the local politicians. That's the widgeon flying off. Yeah, they've been able to work with the local politicians to give the river the same rights as a human being. That is how they feel about their river. It's part of them. And just think what what it would be like if we had mm. that kind of relationship. I know. With and nature in the West. Yeah, so if throughout the whole country, if the wildlife was given far more importance... We just wouldn't, there's certain lines we would just would not have crossed. Mm. Because we would think, how can we do that to one of our fellow creatures? Uh, it's a really great book I recently read called Wilding by Isabella Tree. And uh, she has a very large farm, and her and her husband. Um, decide that it, it's not economic to farm the land anymore because the soil's too clayey. So they basically give it back to nature. Mm. But they use quite a top-down approach. It's the opposite approach that has been used in many nature reserves, I suppose. So they don't prescribe what they want to see and where it's going to happen. So they didn't, they didn't choose in advance what type of habitat they wanted to create? They basically fence it off. Yeah. Um, and then they put in some large herbivores, so um, there used to be big cow-like creatures called aurochs. They try and find a breed that is similar to an auroch. Aurochs are now extinct because we shot them all. There go some barnacles. Yeah, that's a few hundred taken off. So they're going over to another field yeah. where there's more grass. Yeah, I think they're going off to grazing fields. So in the hinterland. So they're doing three. They're coming in from the salt marsh to this bit, which mm. is just behind the salt marsh. Mm. I mean, we're only like you know maybe 500 meters mm. less from the salt marsh, hanging out here for a bit till it gets a bit lighter, and then pushing off inland further to yeah. look for some more grass. Yeah, right. Yeah, so they, so they bring in these large herbivores, and the herbivores, which are, um, I guess, at the top of the food chain, um, although we haven't got any, we haven't got anything to eat the herbivores, like wolves, <clears throat> they start munching on things and ploughing up the land with their hooves. Rewilding just takes place kind of um, by itself. So what sort of vegetation grew on the former farmland? They had a lot of scrub. Um, oh.
mixture of things. And I think they had some years where certain species um, took over a bit. What, like brambles or willow or something? Or certain weeds, mm. what we would call weeds. Mm. Ragwort, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Um, they made some really interesting observations that species that have been associated with woodland, like purple emperor butterflies and nightingales, they love the scrub or the species, the plants that the textbooks said were not their most right. favourable. What was kind of a, um, taken from that was actually, we didn't know anymore what their most preferential habitats were. We were just looking at them in the areas where they were left. So they were clinging on. <coughs> so they were clinging in, on. In, they in they could have lived in yeah. woods. Yeah. But given scrub, they yeah. prefer to be there, and this is what was revealed. Right. Um, so that's a bit... a rewilding yeah. project. That some of our textbooks are wrong. Yeah. Because so they were written at a time when we'd actually got rid of habitat. Yeah. So it's just like the curlews, isn't it? Because now we associate them with, you know, the west, far west coast of Scotland or the uplands. Yeah. Whereas... And that's, that's actually where they're confined now, because that's where there's... Uh, rough grazing and less intense agriculture, but in times gone by they would have been widespread throughout England as well. So they don't necessarily prefer the upland habitat. It's just that's where they're it's the only place <laughs> they can go. It's a refuge, if yeah. you like. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't heard, we haven't seen or heard the mass takeoff that you saw yesterday. But I didn't see it. I just oh, heard sorry, it. that you heard yesterday. But um, these huge the huge flock that was out there was slowly dispersed. Yeah, maybe in family groups. It's much later in the day and we've moved to a different hide to listen to the swans. Talk about the scene in front of us, Cathy. <laughs> what can we see? Well, well, we're, sit we're sitting in a hive, so the swans can't see us, but out there is a group of about 80 hooper swans, all feeding in the water. So some barley's been scattered, and all the swans are jostling and chatting to each other and pecking at the barley and fetching it out of the water. And mixed in with a few mallard and Canada geese. And they've learnt where to be, when, to get fed. <laughs> so um, we happened to arrive in this hide 
just kind of a few minutes before the warden turned up, um, coincidentally, with a wheelbarrow full of grain, um, got a shovel and threw it out into mm. the water. Uh, all the swans were there, ready and waiting. But, and I think having fed, I think this is probably where they're going to spend the night. They're going to roost here on the water. Ooh. I think that was some more geese arriving. Okay. So the geese are all flying in because it's nightfall. They're going to be roosting. Are they? I thought they roosted out on the salt marsh. I know, but they're flying in from the fields. Oh, okay. So they're flying in from the fields over us to get it down to the salt marsh. All right. So we're between them and the salt marsh where they're spending the night. They're yeah. flying overhead. Yeah. yeah so flocks, flocks of geese flying in overhead to get to the salt marsh. So they, those are the barnacle geese, yeah. 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 Looks like the feeding stopped. They've all dispersed. Yeah, they're settling in on the lake, on the water now. So I think they're roosting on the water for safety. Yeah, because there's foxes. Mm. If they were on the land, they might get eaten. Yeah. Whereas no fox is going to attempt to swim into the <laughs> middle of a lake. Hopefully not. We hope you've enjoyed our windy December day at Calaverock. We're going to leave you with the sounds of the ducks and geese feeding on the watery fields, recorded at daybreak. But before we do, there are several wildfowl and wetland trust nature reserves in Britain and Northern Ireland, all great places to go at this time of year to see and hear different types of ducks and geese and swans. Just look for WWT online. Um, if you're interested in having a go at field recording, you can check out the Wildlife Sound Recording Society online as well. So we came to Calabrock this weekend to join in with their winter meeting. And the site's just a good place to pick up advice and tips on how to make good field recordings. And if you're super keen, you can become a member. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave you to the sounds of the birds. And if you like this podcast, please give it a rating on your podcast provider. See ya.